good morning, everybody. So great to see all of you here at this 11 a.m. service, and so great to have all of you who are joining us online, which I know is still most of us. Glad that you've joined us. Um, hope to see you soon. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. Really happy to be here today. Uh, as many of you know, Sharon and I were away for a few days, uh, as is our custom this time of year. Didn't get to do it last year like most of us didn't get to do any of that kind of thing, but we were away for a few days, just the two of us, um, uh, for some rest and relaxation and, and uh, relationship renewal and all that stuff. And so great to be back. She has a tan. I have a light sunburn. That's the story of my life. So happy Valentine's Day. Um, I'm reminded today of a cartoon that I saw many years ago in the, in the comic strip called Kathy. Um, Kathy is gorging on Valentine's Day candy and explains her overindulgence by saying, this is in honor of Irving, her boyfriend, who spends six months getting ready for the Super Bowl but thinks that Valentine's Day is just media hype. Well, in truth, the origins of Valentine's Day are a little murky, and the greeting card and flower companies do hype it up into a cultural hysteria. But um, I, being a, a little bit of a romantic and a wise husband, I hope, do celebrate this holiday and use it to convey my love to my wife of 38 years. In fact, it was 40 years ago today that I told her I loved her for the very first time. And much to my relief, she told me she loved me back. That's the part to clap about. Uh, over the last several weeks, we've been discussing some of the stories that are told in our culture, stories which attempt to define reality and determine what is important to live our best lives. And one story that we've briefly mentioned is the story of romance. The romantic story is a micro-narrative. Joshua Chatrow writes that the story of romance tells us that our loneliness, our insatiable desire to love and be loved, can be satisfied if we just find our soulmate. The romantic story is a good story if lived out in the larger macro-narrative of God's story. Here's part of what I mean by that. Several weeks ago, I mentioned the story of romance and looked down at Sharon on the front row and said, I was made for you. And when I said that, everybody in the room clapped. The reason that everybody clapped is because you get that. You get the romantic story. You are something, there's something special about a man standing here saying, as I did a moment ago, you know, 40 years ago today, I told her I loved her for the first time. We get that. Um, and so when I said that, when I said to her, I was made for you, there was a response from the crowd that said, yeah, we get that. But then I emphasized the, the fact that though it is true that I was made for her, it's only a secondary truth. Because the macro narrative that defines my life is that I was made for God. And my secondary truth has to be lived in light of primary truth. The micro-narrative has to be lived in light of the macro-narrative. 
The, the scripture that sums up the macro narrative in this regard is one I've referred to frequently lately, Colossians 1.15, where Paul said, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything. And here's the money line. Everything was created through him and for him, so he is first in everything. Primary truth, I was created for him. Secondary truth, within that larger truth, I was created or made for her. Do you understand? The macro narrative is God's love story for humanity. The micro narrative is that within that context, we can experience love stories with each other. See, I think it's wonderful to live a romantic story with another human being as long as you live it within the greater love story between God and people. Uh, the primary truth is that both Sharon and I and our marriage and our family and everything else in our lives were made by God, for God, and the most important love relationship we have is actually not with each other. The most important love relationship we have is our relationship with God. And I think that once we get that relationship right, then we have the, the greater possibility of truly knowing what it's like to experience the depths of love with another person. Here's an amazing passage of Scripture. It's John's letter to the church, his first one, where it says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It only makes sense then that if I'm in a relationship with God who is love, that I have a greater capacity to be in loving relationships with others. Our love stories are much richer when lived within the framework of God's love story. See, the fact is the hole in my heart cannot be filled, not ultimately, by my wife as much as I love her. This insatiable need for love that I have, that each of us have, can only be filled by God. As Augustine famously wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So something I probably only mentioned a time or two in all the many years that I've been teaching, uh, the nearly 30 years I've been teaching here, is that fairly early in our marriage, we were having trouble in our relationship. We were having serious trouble in our relationship. We were just kids trying to figure out how to do life together. And frankly, there was a season where we didn't know if, if we were going to make it. And Sharon went to her dad for advice, which I didn't particularly like at that time. But he gave her counsel that became life-defining for both of us. It was simple but profound. He said, Sharon, your husband cannot make you happy. Don't look for happiness in him because you'll never find it. Look for happiness in your relationship with God only God can make you truly happy. Focus on your relationship with God first and then focus on your relationship with Terry. 
And the fact is, he was absolutely right. See, some of us are trying to find happiness in the story of romance, and you're disappointed because you're, you were not made to find happiness, not primarily in any other per person. You were made to find your happiness in your relationship with God. I'm all for romance, but you can only find ultimate love and the happiness it brings in a loving relationship with the God who made you for himself and who is love. Now, let me, let me offer, a, I, I, I think, a strong word of caution some, some of us search for love and happiness in ways that actually take us away from God. Oftentimes our justification for our behaviors and for relationships that are outside of God's design for relationships and especially God's design for marriage and the family is I just want to be happy. See, in our culture, somebody wanting to be happy justifies almost anything. But the fact is, a lot of times we do things to try to find happiness that take us away from the one who can actually make us happy. Try as we might, we cannot find love and happiness, not ultimate love, and ultimate happiness outside of God and the way that he designed us to practice loving relationships with others. Here's a, here's a simple, an imperfect, but simple example of what I mean by this. There's an article um, uh, about Dan Gilbert, the Harvard psychologist who uh, is, has been on the leading edge of this, uh, this the study uh, of, of happiness in recent years. Uh, this is a very popular thing, even courses on college campuses now. Daniel Gilbert was at the forefront of this at Harvard. He said, it's hugely important to be happy, and I don't mean walking around with a silly smile on your face, I mean achieving a general sense of satisfaction with life and a sense of well-being. And then the next thing he talked about was how important commitment is to truly being happy. He wrote, or he said in this interview, people who commit to relationships, I'm going to stress the word a little differently. People who commit to relationships are much happier than those who don't. That's why married people are happier than those who just live together. My girlfriend and I had been living together for a dozen years, and those findings from the research seemed so clear to me that I went home and proposed. Now we're married, and I do love my wife more than I loved my girlfriend, even though she's the same person. Commitment isn't just a sign of love, it's a cause of love. Now why, I could use a lot of examples, but, but, but I'll use that one. Why is that true? Why once he made a commitment to the woman he was living with and married her, did he, this Harvard psychologist, say that he loved his wife more than he loved his girlfriend even though it was the same person? It's because that's the way God designed relationships in this regard to happen. And when we, he designed it so that when we make a commitment to someone, there, 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 there's a dimension of love that becomes possible because it reflects God's commitment to us and what it means when it says he is love and what it means to do love towards another person. And when we 
begin to live within God's design for relationships, that's where, well then, this is, it's, it's simple. This is how we were made. This is how God intended it. Now, I've done sermons like this in the past where, where uh, there have been several proposals that happened the day that I did the sermon. And I'm expecting this week to get some emails saying, I finally decided to cross the line and to do this thing the way it's supposed to be done. By the way, happy Valentine's Day. I'm serious, I've gotten, anyway. Now I realize that this approach to love God first, right now I've got some women very happy with me and some guys who are thinking about whether they're gonna stay for the rest of the sermon. But you're gonna thank me someday. I I realize that this approach to, to love God first and to love others within the bounds of God's love is counterintuitive and countercultural. We're frequently, frequently, constantly told that we, we should free ourselves of moral strictures and commitments and anything that doesn't bring an immediate happiness buzz. And so often we act in ways that bring the short-term buzz but long-term discontentment. And by long-term discontentment, I'm not just talking about a matter of years. I'm talking about a matter of eternity. The fact is that, that we must live our micro-stories within God's larger macro-story so that our stories have a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning, and ultimately love in the way that God intended it, which, which I couldn't help when I was writing this this week to think about the, the, the Westminster Confession. The first question in the Westminster Confession is all of you good Presbyterians know, and there was a Presbyterian pastor actually at the nine o'clock service this morning. The Westminster Con- Confession question number one asks, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if this macro narrative is true, that my chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then every micro narrative must be lived within that greater story. So on Valentine's Day, we should ask, what is the chief and highest end of every loving relationship in my life? And the answer, of course, would be to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if your romantic story is being lived in the context of that story, then your romantic story is a good story. If your romantic story is not being lived in the context of that story, then your romantic story could be a better story. So let me spend the rest of my time offering three beliefs for a better love story. Three beliefs for a better love story. Is everybody doing okay? Man, I wish I could see your smiling faces. Um, But I'm glad you have your mask on. That's imperative uh, during this season. But um, I wish I could see your smiling faces. But your eyes are kind of lit up, so I like that. So here's the first belief for a better love story. It's to believe in love. Believe in love. So in recent weeks, we've been offering a compare and contrast between the stories being told in our culture as contrasted against the story of God as told in Scripture. 
Um, we've been comparing macro narratives, micro narratives. This is the last week that, that of this particular series. Next week, I'm so excited we launch a new series for Lent, and we'll get into all of that then. But but let me let me I say that so you'll understand why I'm going to talk about. Uh, uh, the naturalistic approach to love as opposed to a theistic approach to love. Or a naturalistic approach to, to um, uh, romance as opposed to a theistic approach to romance. So, so, so the, the story of naturalism, which is a macro narrative, and we've talked about several subsets of naturalism in recent weeks. The story of naturalism can only describe love, if one's honest, in terms of evolutionary science and biology. The story of biblical theism makes room for the wonder and mystery of love. The naturalist says that there is no God and that the universe and all of us are the result of, to, here's one of many ways it could be said, that we're all a result of a freak accident that occurred in a somehow pre-existent material world and then followed by a non-providential evolutionary process. And when someone truly buys into to the, the naturalist story, a, a, a story of humanity does not involve God as an intelligent designer who had a plan and a purpose for us. If someone then tries to, to describe things like love and meaning. It's really difficult to do. Here, here's, a, here's an honest approach by someone to try to explain love from a naturalistic worldview. This is from the, the huge bestseller 25 years ago or so by M. Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled. Uh, Peck was actually on his way to faith at this time. Uh, he actually moved from naturalism to theism. But as a naturalist, this is what he wrote trying to explain love. He wrote, falling in love is a stereotypic response of human beings to a configuration of internal sexual drives and external sexual stimuli which serves to increase the probability of sexual pairing and bonding so as to enhance the survival of the species. Or to put it in another way, falling in love is a trick that our genes pull on our otherwise perceptive mind to hoodwink or trap us into marriage. Now that's romantic, isn't it? But the fact is, the naturalist cannot really talk about love in terms of wonder and mystery and romance because there has to be a naturalistic explanation to what it is that we're experiencing in our life. In another place in this book, M. Scott Peck, though, kind of threw up his hands and said, clearly there are dimensions of love that are most difficult to understand the people who know the most about such things are those among the religious who are students of mystery, capital M, mystery. It is to them and to the subject of religion that we must turn if we are to obtain even glimmerings of insight into this matter, to which, of course, I agree. Science cannot explain love. But Scripture, in fact, can at least give us some idea of love. See, biblical theism, which is, as we've taught in recent weeks, this, this macro narrative that there's a creator God who is infinite and personal and transcendent and imminent and omniscient and sovereign and good, that there's a God who out of love created this world and humanity. Biblical theism makes room for the mystery of love and sources this love in God himself. See, the only way to make sense of this world, at least I, I posit, 
is to understand that God created humanity in order to have loving relationships with beings who can participate in that relationship through their own free will. One can say God's entire motivation for creating the universe and human beings is love. And then when humanity got messed up and rejected his love, God didn't give up, but he expressed, if you please, reckless love because it was love that caused him to send his only son into this world to redeem us and bring us back into relationship with him. How can one explain the love of God? How can one comprehend that God has feelings of love and acts in concert with that love? The love of God is a wonderful mystery. And it's that love, the love of God, that allows me to believe in the wonder and mystery even the irrationality of love between two human beings. This is why the, the polymath Bertrand Russell can say, in the relationship of a man and a woman who love each other with passion and imagination and tenderness, there is something of inestimable value to be ignorant of, which is a great misfortune to any human being. This is why a novelist like Leo Tolstoy can have a character in, in War and Peace named Prince Andre say this about falling in love with a woman. If anyone had predicted the possibility of my being so deeply in love, I wouldn't have believed it. It is an entirely different sentiment from the one I had formerly. The whole world is divided from me into two portions. The one where she is and there all happiness and hope and light are found. The other is where she is not. And there everything is gloom and darkness. Please hear me when I say, the naturalist says, if you please, love is a trick that our genes play on us so that we'll mate and perpetuate the species. It's an ex exciting, isn't it? The theist says, love is a wonderful mystery sourced in God, and it doesn't make any sense, but for some reason, he loved us and he loves us. And he is love, and because of that, we can expect to experience love with others in our lives. Now, even more beautiful than that, though, and by that I mean this wonder and mystery and the, the, the passion of love, even more beautiful than that and more foundational is that in Scripture, love is is actually more than a feeling. It encompasses feelings. I'll talk about that a little bit. But it's actually more than a feeling because it, 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 the kind of love we're called to practice in our relationships is the kind of love God practices practiced when he loved us so much that he made a decision to do certain things, to act toward us in certain ways that demonstrated his love regardless whether or not his affection was being returned. Love in Scripture is more than a feeling. It does manifest in our feelings, but it's not ultimately based there. Love is a decision we make. Love is an act of the will. Love is a commitment that we keep regardless how we feel. Now, I'm going to tell you when we do that, the feelings come, but, but love is actually even deeper than what we feel. The passion, the romance which is all good and fine, but there's something even deeper than that in Scripture. It's, it's probably best expressed in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he wrote, love is patient, love is kind, 
It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily anchored. Angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The kind of love expressed here, the kind of love celebrated here and throughout Scripture is divine love. Perhaps I should say the kind of love most celebrated through Scripture. It's well known, and this is very common knowledge, uh, but I'll remind you of this truth that the Greek language has three prominent words which we translate love into English. Uh, Pardon the, the, the reference to to Greek, but the, the, the fact is that the New Testament is mostly written in Greek, and it helps us sometimes to understand our translations by going back to the original Greek. That's why you'll hear pastors, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, who'll do that. Um, so, so there are three Greek words, prominent Greek words. There are actually more, but three prominent Greek words translated love into English. The one is eros. Eros is sensual love. Eros often refers to physical pleasure. This word's actually never used in the Bible, although the Bible always celebrates the sexual relationship of a man and a woman in the context of marriage. The second most, uh, the second word in, in Greek, and a word that is often used in Scripture, is the word philia. This is love that's rooted in feelings or affections, um, one author I read this week said that philia most represents tender affection. This can be the affection that we feel for our spouse or a child or a friend. In fact, Philadelphia it comes from this word uh, philia, which has to do with brotherly love. It has to do with the affection that we feel for each other. And then there, of course, is agape. Agape love is divine love. Agape love is not rooted in feelings. It supersedes feelings. It is best expressed through the self-giving love of God. Agape is a decision to love and to demonstrate love in ways that are beneficial to others. This is the fundamental love that we're to have for one another. This is love that chooses to act in ways that proves that we love. This is the kind of love that God had for humanity. And this is the kind of love that we can receive and give when we know God, when we're in relationship with God. It's only when we're in relationship with God and only when we know God that we can practice this in all the fullness that it was intended to be practiced in any human relationship. Look here what what Jesus said. It's recorded in John 13. He said, a new command I give you. Love one another, note this next line, as I have loved you. Our capacity to love another is rooted in the fact that we are loved by God who is love. A new command, Jesus said, I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One way that you could read this is because this is the way it actually uh, uh, is in the original language, a new command I give you, agape one another. As I have agaped you, so you must agape one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you agape one another. This is 
a love that's so deep that it's that nothing in the world can shake this love that we have towards another person now i think that when we practice that kind of love and this is divine love this is love that comes to us from god then we learn that that when we make a commitment to love that many times the feelings of tender affection follow here, here's an example that mirrors this. It's an imperfect example, but, but it's an example. I, I, um, I've always loved the story of Alan Alda, the actor. For those of you who are older, you'll know who I'm talking about. For those of you who are younger, Google away. Alan Alda uh, had been married for 25 years in the context of Hollywood, and someone interviewed him and his wife. They were so amazed that in a Hollywood setting that a couple could stay married for 25 years, and they're trying to find out what was going on. And Alva said something I've thought about many, many times. I read this years ago. He said, love returns in waves, waves of puppy love that feel more vibrant than the first blush of romance at 20. That's followed by waves of utter discontent Yes, utter detestation. You just have to wait it out. I want you to see two things there. First of all, there's a commitment to love. This mirrors agape love. There's a commitment to love and to, and to stay in that commitment on the basis of a decision that's made. Yet, when that decision is made, the feelings of love sometimes are more or less, but they always return. The feelings follow the decision. Another uh, beautiful way that I find this said is in, in, a, in a beautiful book by Alan Loy McGinnis called The Romance Factor. He wrote, I do not know any way one can stay happily married and raise children to adulthood without some willingness to suffer. One does not build a warm and loving family by seeking personal pleasure as the end-all and be-all of life. There are occasions when you must endure. No one is pretending the soul-stirring ecstasy of early romance can ever be a constant in a marriage. If your relationship is based on that, you will not be together long. But if your relationship is based on the trust of your pledge, on your joint determination to stay together because you believe in the family, the joys will return in waves. I think, again, I see two things here. I see love fundamentally as a decision that's made to act in another's best interest, to make a promise, to keep a promise, to be committed to something, regardless how you feel. And I also see that when one makes that kind of commitment and keeps that kind of a commitment, that the feelings of love, the passion, the wonder, the mystery, the romance can be expected to manifest in that relationship in beautiful ways. I believe that when you practice agape love, that the that the feelings of love will follow, that the deepest feelings of love flow from the decision to love. Here's a way that I see this in Scripture. I'll say it quickly. Uh, you might remember the example or the, the story of, of Peter and Jesus reconciling with each other after Peter had denied Jesus at the cross. Remember that story? They're walking on the seashore. I think it's John 21, if I remember correctly. They're walking on the seashore, and three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? To which Peter seems to be grieved that he keeps getting asking, asked the question. He says, yes, you know I love you. But Jesus asked it three times anyway. The first time he asked him, he said, do you agape me? 
And Peter said, yes, I love you. And the second time Jesus asked, he said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, yes, you know I love you. But the third time Jesus changes the, 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 the word, he says, Peter, do you philia me? And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, first of all, I need to make sure that, the, that you've made the decision to love me, but, but now, finally, I need to know that you feel it. I want to know that you have tender affection for me. And I think in our relationships with one another, that we should make the decision to love, but we should also be careful to nurture the feelings of tender affection that sometimes might feel like they come and go, but we are never satisfied unless we are, we are living in the, the romantic story that's not just decision, but it's also about our feelings and our passion for one another. See, I don't think it's, I don't think, sometimes you hear Christian pastors talk about marriage and we'll stress so much the commitment. And I'm stressing it and I always do stress it because I know if you stay committed, and, and you, you, you're truly practicing agape love, that your life will be fuller and the joys will come in waves and that you'll be so glad you stuck it out through the difficult times. But sometimes you might hear a pastor talk about this in such a way where it's kind of like, well, I guess even though we can't stand each other right now, I'm just gonna live in this, this state of not standing each other forever. Even though we've lost the passion, this is just, I guess, how it's gonna be. And, and it's almost like, like we, we, we remember the agape, but we forget the philia, if you please. And it's like we're just going to be unhappily married, but we're going to stick this thing out. And I'm saying you can do both. You can stick the thing out, and you can resolve to be nothing less than happily married. I don't know where things like this come to my mind, but this week I, I remembered a song. I probably heard it one time, but it stuck by, by, by a country group. I don't even listen to country music called The Pistol Annies. Well, I don't know anything about them except this song. Uh... Listen to just a couple verses and a couple choruses and um, see if you think this is funny or sad. I don't know. Let's look. Must be mistaken me with the maid we don't have. Can't even wash your whiskey out your glass. And give you no loving in a month or so Can't live without you, but I can't let you go Hey, hey, it's alright Everybody fusses, everybody pops With all of the baggage You and me carry We'll spend forever unhappily You better start working some overtime Can't buy See, that's what a lot of couples are saying. We're going to stick it out. And I'm telling you, you need to say, we're going to stick it out. But I also think you need to say, and we're going to have a wonderful 
romantic story together. We're, we're on the foundation of agape. We are satisfied with nothing less than the feelings of tender affection that, well, we felt towards each other in the early stages of our relationship. If we practice agape love, feelings of love will return over and over and deeper and deeper. Here's the second thing, and I need to hurry. The second thing I encourage you to believe that live a better love story is to believe that God is love. So the first point was believe in love. Now, I want you to believe that God is love. So uh, during my study intensive last August, I read a, a, a beautiful book by Paul Kalanithi. I'm sure some of you've read it. It was, a, it was a, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, Dr. Uh, Kalanithi was uh, diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer, um, and as a neurosurgeon, he knew that scientifically that he just had a brief amount of time to live, and he decided to write a memoir to, to talk about his experience of, of his life and, and facing his death and uh, during this time, his beautiful wife gave birth to a child. And th this book is breathtakingly beautiful, sad, somehow wonderful. I want to give you, a, before I read you something that he said, I want to give you a sense of the brilliance of this guy. He graduated from Stanford University with a bachelor's and master's in English literature and a bachelor's in human biology. He earned a master's in history and philosophy of science and medicine from the University of Cambridge. He graduated cum laude from the Yale School of Medicine. He returned to Stanford to complete his residency training in neurological surgery and postdoctoral fellowship in neuroscience, during which he received the American Academy of Neurological Surgery's highest awards for research. I mean, this is a brilliant guy, studied in the humanities, studied in the sciences. And part of his book, he talks about how that he had lost his faith and how he found his way back to his faith in Jesus. He writes, during my sojourn in ironclad atheism, the primary arsenal leveled against Christianity had been its failure on empirical grounds. There is no proof of God, therefore it is unreasonable to believe in God. I, like most scientific types, came to believe in the possibility of a material conception of reality an ultimately scientific worldview that would grant a complete metaphysics minus outmoded concepts like souls and gods. In other words, he was living the macro narrative of naturalism, a, a world without God, and a focus uh, on trying to find a, a material explanation for everything that is. He said, I spent a good chunk of my 20s trying to build a frame for such an endeavor. The problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, to consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. In other words, he tried from purely scientific explanation. And by the way, I'm all for science. But he tried from a from a purely scientific explanation to try to explain the metaphysical, that which is beyond the physical, love, meaning, and so on. And he discovered that the, 
macro narrative of naturalism could not explain something like love. And the fact is that if you believe in love, you really must believe in God. I mean, it's either that or the naturalistic explanation that leads you down, you know, a uh, 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 unending roads that talk about genes being hoodwinked into, into mating so we can perpetuate the species. But the fact is, if you believe in love, if you've felt love, if you've experienced love, I submit that you must believe in God. Here's what John wrote. He said, let us love one another for love comes from God because God is love. It's like Dostoevsky wrote, an apologist in his own way. He wrote, the more you succeed in loving, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. See, guys, it's an amazing thing to understand that love is sourced in God. That love doesn't make sense at all unless, in fact, God is love. We should see love as evidence of the existence of God. But even more, we should see God as evidence for the existence of love. Because God is love, we should expect to experience love in our own lives. The love of God and the love of others. We should expect to give love and receive love sourced in God himself. It only stands to reason then and this is my third thing I'm encouraging you to believe, that we should believe that we can love each other better when we're in relationship with a loving God. We should believe that we can love each other better when we're in relationship with a loving God. Remember the advice my father-in-law gave to Sharon, you know, 36 or 37 years ago. It probably feels like that was how long ago I told you that story in this service. I think that was 37 years ago. Focus first on your relationship with God and then focus on your relationship with your spouse. And, 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 and you, you, guys, that's, that's, really, that's really where love is most poignantly found Again, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love is found in relationship with God and gives us a capacity to love others better. Or as John wrote in his first letter again, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God because God is love. It's as if God is saying, love as I've loved you. If you're in relationship with me and getting to know me better, you're going to be able to love others better. So to grow in our ability to give and receive love in our relationships with each other, we must first focus on our relationship with God who is love. We must know him better. We must love him better. We must receive his love more. Now let me close then by reminding you of a well-known passage of Scripture that I really felt compelled to mention as, a, as, a, as the close of this talk today, this Valentine's Day, the close of this series about a better story and all that. It's that passage in the Revelation that many of you would be familiar with where John, speaking on behalf of God, writes to seven churches, and one of the churches is a church in Ephesus. And here's part of what he said. He says, I know your deeds, 
your hard work and your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. God says essentially, hey, listen, I like so much about what's going on with you guys. But here's the thing I don't like. I don't like the fact that you lost your first love. And I want you to repent and I want you to go back and do the things you did at first when you first decided to love me and when, as is common for people who first come into relationship with Jesus, when you first felt that passion for me. I want to encourage you today to stir up the love that you had at the beginning. I want you to stir up the love you had in, your, in the beginning, first of all, in your relationship with God. But I also want to challenge some couples in this room to stir up the love that you had at the beginning in your relationship. You know, the passion, let's talk about the God thing first. You know what it's like to come to Christ and the passion that you felt when you first confessed your faith and you first entered into this relationship with him. But the fact is that every new believer I've ever seen, at some point that level of passion dissipates. It's normal, it happens. It's hard to be in a state of perpetual passion. But listen guys, don't forget that God loves you and he wants you to passionately love him back. God is a passionate lover. And we must consistently stir up passionate love for God. He loved us and he wants to be loved back. It's a decision, but it's not just a decision to be faithful to God. It's also a relationship that has a level of passion. Some people talk about the story of God in terms of the divine romance. So what would it look like for you to go up and stir up the things that you did at first or to do the things you did at first to stir up that passion for God? What would it look like? What kind of focus did you have early in your relationship with God? How, how, how curious were you? How much were you learning? How, 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 were you one of those people you probably were that you couldn't have kept you from showing up on a Sunday morning to worship because you just were so overwhelmed by God's love? I challenge you today on this Valentine's Day to go back and do the things you did at first to stir that passion up all over again. And I particularly want to challenge us as we head into the Lenten season to use the Lenten season to do the things you did at first. Some of you come from traditions where Lent was practiced and maybe the tradition was, was emphasized but there wasn't a life-giving spirit to the tradition. And when someone comes from that kind of tradition, Lent is all about what am I going to give up for Lent? That's not what Lent's about. Always remember something. This tradition of Lent that goes back almost 2,000 years, as is true of any tradition of the church, is only worthwhile if it's, if it's practiced for the right reasons. The practice in and of itself is not good. It's only worthwhile if it's practiced for the right reasons. The letter, the rules kill, but the Spirit gives life. And we take traditions and we infuse them with meaning when we use the tradition to help us grow in our relationship with God. And during the Lenten season, we focus on Jesus. 
we focus on Jesus as we head towards Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter and then Ascension in May, we focus our attention on Jesus. I encourage you to use the Lenten season to stir up your first love. If that means fasting or giving up something, good. If giving up something doesn't help you focus on Jesus, don't do it. I'm going to give something up, but I'm going to give it up to help me focus more on Jesus. The whole idea of Lent is to focus on Jesus. And if that's not what you do, there's no need to practice it. It's just a tradition. Then. But you can infuse it with life by focusing on Jesus. So I encourage us to stir up our first love for Jesus. And then secondly, I especially feel like speaking to people who are married today or people who need to make the commitment to get married. Don't be satisfied being in a dispassionate relationship. What would it look like for you to go back and stir up first love? What would that look like to you? Maybe on this Valentine's Day, you can make a new commitment and make sure that commitment includes you doing whatever needs to be done to get back that loving feeling. It's going to be something as simple as making a, a commitment to a date night every week or, or planning a week in some romantic location for just the two of you. Sharon and I have just done that. We're committed to doing that with regularity. It could be a decision to spend time with a marriage counselor. Whatever it is, I encourage you, stir up first love. Be dissatisfied with anything other than a marriage that is telling a beautiful romantic story in a way that honors God in your life. Oh,